From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The 2020 Olympic Games are officially postponed, and with them, many athletes' dreams of competing on that world stage. It's been a dream of mine, literally, since I I can remember. So trying to figure out how I can make that work is definitely going to be the next step for 2021, I guess. Then, the long lines for booze Monday in Denver reveal just how much people use alcohol to soothe themselves in scary times. Also, older Coloradans who depend on caregivers find themselves at a crossroads, risk exposure to get the help they need, or stay isolated. We'll get perspective on this Catch-22, and we share the story of a mother and daughter trying to keep isolation from leading to loneliness. You've got to maintain your mental health. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Bill. It's been an agonizing 24 hours for Olympic hopefuls. Monday, they heard the news report that they'd been dreading. The 2020 Tokyo Olympics would likely be postponed for a year because of COVID-19. Hours later, the International Olympic Committee walked that report back. And today, it announced the Olympics are definitely postponed probably until 2021. The athletes hoping to compete are faced with an uncertain future. Their dreams delayed, but hopefully still within reach. Annie Kuntz of Wheat Ridge, Colorado, is the 2020 U.S. Indoor Pentathlon champion. She's also a favorite to qualify for the U.S. Olympic track and field team in the heptathlon. I spoke with her after the initial report of a delay from the Olympic Training Center of Chula Vista in San Diego. Hi, Annie. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Annie, I have to imagine it's disheartening to have a life dream like this put off, especially just four months before the opening ceremony was supposed to happen. Were you training when the word came down? Yeah, we um, we were at practice today, my two other training partners and I, uh, when the news hit. And, um, you know, I'll be honest, at first, it's a very, it's a disheartening, um, very, very disheartening thing to hear. Um, but also you have to think about the greater good and where the world is at right now in our country and, you know, the lives and livelihood of everyone going like right now. And so it's, if the Olympics were canceled, I think it'd be a completely different story. We still have the hope that we get to, you know, achieve that goal that we've been working towards our whole life, but it's definitely, it definitely hurts, (laughs) um, because we thought we were so close only a few months away from what we've been preparing for, for, our whole lives, especially the last four years. Um, so it's hard, but I'm just trying to stay positive and try to focus on what I can control right now. And um, just very thankful that they're not canceled and we still will have that opportunity to make a team. And the athletes were actually a big part of the driving force behind the postponement. Is that right? Yeah, it was. I was actually on a call this weekend on Saturday. Um, USATF kind of put together a conference call. There was about, I think we maxed out the Zoom call. So it was like 300 people um, that were on it. Um, And they were just trying to pick apart the athletes' brains and see what everyone was feeling, see what everyone's opinions were um, and what we were wanting to kind of take that to the Olympic Committee. Um, So very thankful that they asked our opinions and and took what we had to say to the Olympic Committee. Um, I think about 80% of the athletes were for postponement. So... Now, there is still so much up in the air. The U.S. Olympic track and field trials where athletes qualify for the Games, they're still scheduled for the third Mm -hmm. week of June in Eugene, Oregon. 
Is there any word mm-hmm. on whether that event will still happen, even if the Olympic Games are not? That's the thing that we're we're not sure, and that I think that's been the hardest part about this whole scenario is this, everything that's happening right now is unprecedented. So it's hard to navigate. No one knows how to navigate through this. Um, and these championships, these Olympic trials, um, the Olympics, there are years and years of planning goes into these things. So logistically, it's really tough. Right now, we don't know anything about the Olympic trials. Um, and I think, thankfully, today, I think we at least got some clarity that postponement will be happening. So we know that at least. Um, so now, right now, we're just trying to see if we will even get a season. Um, and that's, I think, I'm sure we'll know in the next couple of weeks as things are moving pretty quickly here. There's new information every day and things are changing pretty quickly. But um, as of right now, we have no idea um, what will happen for the rest of the season. Now, you compete in the heptathlon. That's seven events. Let's get a little bit of clarity. Which events are those? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so it's the women's version of the decathlon. Um, so we do the hurdle, the hundred meter hurdles, the high jump, the shot put, the 200 meter dash. Um, and then on day two, we go and do the long jump, the javelin and the 800. And I imagine that means you have to train extra hard to be at your peak in each one of those Mm -hmm. at the Olympic games. Does it make it harder to navigate now that there's been this postponement? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely hard. We, we talked a little bit with our coach today that, you know, with this time, we might be able to to focus more on our weaker events for longer and not having to prioritize to all seven at the same time. Um, so that could be a positive that comes out of this. Um, it's definitely, I, I think the hardest part is that, you know, this is a four-year thing that we you know, sacrifice our social lives, we sacrifice finances, we sacrifice a lot in these four years, and you want to peak at the right time. Um, And going into this Olympic year, you're trying to be at your best and your peak, and then three months out of thinking you're going to be competing to make that team, it kind of gets, you get thrown a curveball, and you have to reevaluate and try to peak at the right time next year. So that, just navigating through that and kind of changing things will be our focus in the next coming week. So it's not just about trying to meet your physical peak. It's also about the economics of this. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, finances and, you know, there isn't a lot of money in track and field especially. So, um, and in, in my specialty in the combined events, um, we aren't, offered a lot of sponsorships because we aren't really, um, we don't have a lot of exposure. So it's a little bit harder. Um, and you know, people are doing part-time jobs when they can, but you really can't focus on a career right now with training, especially for seven different events. Um, so that's a thing that's kind of a bummer going in thinking, thinking that you're going to have just this year and then you can kind of start making some money and then, getting this curveball and having to figure out if you can financially make it for another year. Um, it's definitely hard. And I think a lot of athletes can relate to that. And obviously this news just came down, but have you thought about how you're going to navigate it? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a lot to process. I think I, I came in to this later. I did soccer in college as well. So I was a dual sport athlete. My scholarship was actually for soccer. Um, so I'm, I have just kind of taken it year by year. And as I continue to get better and get better, I I, I keep telling myself, I I don't want to stop until um, I'm not getting better anymore. So 
I I think that I will keep going. Um, obviously, now I'm going to be doing it another year because I want that opportunity to make that team. It's been a dream of mine, literally, since I, I can remember. Um, so trying to figure out how I can make that work is definitely going to be the next the next steps um, for 2021, I guess. What conversations are you having with athletes and other coaches as this news about the postponement sinks in? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of talk. I think everyone's trying. Every I think up until now, everyone's kind of just tried to put their head in the sand a little bit and, and just try to stay focused on training. Um, now that we have news of what's going to happen, I think people want more clarity. Um, you know, we read I read the article that I saw today um, from the IOC member says that it'll be most likely 2021, but we just want that clarity. So there are there is also talk. Will they just push it back a few months? best case scenario if everything calms down with coronavirus um, or will it be for sure another year um, there's also like Canada has already pulled out along with Australia and they said that they won't send their athletes if they do postpone it even just for a couple of months so a lot of even factors floating around a lot of frustration and hurt I think within the athletes but you know you compare it back to like today a practice we were talking about in the night in, in the 80s when, you know, athletes, the boycott happened and athletes weren't even given that opportunity to go compete. They, they got that ripped away from them. So I'm just, I think it's a blessing that we still have the opportunity. Um, it's just postponed a little bit to go chase our dream. The IOC, you mentioned the International Olympics Committee, and they're the ones who make this decision. Mm-hmm. We haven't yeah. even touched yet on the very real risk of getting sick. Obviously, COVID-19, as well as isolation during recovery, that could throw a real wrench Mm -hmm. in athletic training. Has anyone at the training center there in San Diego gotten sick? Um, No, not. I don't know of anyone. Um, You know, they've they've put in pretty strict protocols and restrictions. Um, They're cleaning things just 24-7 over at the center that I train at. Um, And everything is outside. Um, We have, like, we're trying to keep our groups very small. So they're, they're putting systems in place, but, um, you know, it, it is scary. And I think that that takes priority right now is like the greater good of everyone and the health of everybody and the lives and the livelihood I'm more worried about right now. And that takes, that takes priority over any, any sport right now. And like you said, you're still training. How is the Olympic Training Center keeping everything sanitized? I imagine there's a lot of equipment involved. Yeah. Yeah. So they shut down the, the weight room um, inside. You usually have like a dining hall area. And right now you're not allowed to touch anything inside there. So they'll bring you your food in a to-go box and you have to leave and take it that way. So no one's um, able to sit or touch anything used in there. Um, and then all of our training is only outside. So we can't really go inside of our like little shed thing that we have. Um, all the weight room equipment has been moved outside and they're sanitizing that with it after each touch. So um, that's kind of the changes that have happened. I'm sure it's going to continue to change within the next week or two. And how are you keeping a safe distance from other athletes and coaches, especially when you train alongside people? Right. Yeah. Um, so when we warm up, we've just been like keeping like two lanes, just like distance from each other. Um, just being really, you know, mindful of, of the circumstances that we're in hand sanitizer constantly, um, touching equipment, we're just sanitizing everything. So it's just, 
I'm honestly surprised a little bit that the center is still open, but people do live there. So it's their homes. I think that's the main reason that it's had stayed open. Um, but it's definitely, I mean, even this week, I was a little bit hesitant to even if we should be going to the center just because I want to be very mindful and, and smart about the situation we're in right now. Are you considering training somewhere besides the center? Um, it's hard. I mean, I think this week will be a little bit telling. I, I, I think we're going to start to really reevaluate things. It's the postponement. Once we get the date and, and the official word that it's postponed for a year, I'm sure we'll take some time off. We'll stay in home. We'll do workouts in home um, so that we can, you know, fall in line with what everyone else is doing. And, you know, that our sport won't be the priority at that time because we have so much time to prepare. Um, and that's kind of what I'm hoping for in the next coming days. Annie, good luck. And thank you so much for being here. <laughs> Thank you, guys. I appreciate you guys getting getting our opinions and our and our voice heard. <laughs> Annie Coons of Wheatridge, Colorado, is a favorite to qualify for the U.S. Olympic track and field team to compete in the heptathlon. The 2020 Olympic Games, which were scheduled to begin this July in Tokyo, were officially postponed today. On a normal Sunday, Elizabeth Richards visits her 83-year-old mom, Martha Bass, at her mom's condominium. Richards helps her pay her bills and settles in for a chat. But that's not what happened last Sunday. Here's Richards. I met her at the lobby of her condo building. We sat in two chairs that were at least six feet apart. She gave me her bills and other things. And what I ended up doing was taking them home. Whether it was luck or fate, family members recently installed an Alexa device at Bass's home that allows video chats. When Richards got home, she connected with her mother. All of a sudden, things were more familiar. We had Alexa set up on her dining table and on my dining table, and I had a cup of tea, and she had a cup of tea. And so we just kept going back and forth. In an odd sort of way, it was like telecommuting with my mother. Richards has stayed almost entirely at home recently for fear of getting the virus and perhaps passing it on. I don't know if I'm being overly cautious but I don't want to be the one who brings the virus in. And it's not just into mother's home. It's into the whole condo community where she lives. And there's so many vulnerable people there. Caution also made it impossible for Richards to do something else she'd planned on Sunday. Late last week, she called to get her mom's grocery list. The idea was that Richards would order it before their visit and avoid going into the store by picking it up outside. At the top of Bass's list, a green banana and six Brussels sprouts. I go to place the order and I can't because Every slot is filled for the next three days. And I actually start crying. Martha Bass lives in a community with other retirees. But with the exception of her daughter and an occasional cleaning lady, she's pretty independent. She likes to cook her own dinner. I like tacos, bratwurst. I just cook a variety of things. Her life has narrowed some since the coronavirus crisis. We have movies, a Bible study prayer meeting, and we have a game night. 
and those are weekly. We just do things together. Most of those have been canceled, but she and her neighbors on the fourth floor still get together to talk. They even have dinner sometimes, even though that doesn't follow the recommended physical distancing of six feet. You've got to maintain your mental health as well as your physical health. Her daughter says her mother needs quality of life. Maybe death isn't that scary. If the choice is loneliness... It's still unclear how long the elderly will have to stay at home to protect themselves from the virus. Martha Bass says she doesn't spend a lot of time looking ahead. Fear is something that, generally speaking, I've dealt with. God doesn't give me a spirit of fear. That was Martha Bass. She's 83 and lives in a retirement condominium. Her daughter, Elizabeth Richards, is a software executive. They both live in Evergreen. Now, Bass and Richards clearly have some advantages. Martha is relatively independent. She has a close group of friends and neighbors, and her daughter is nearby. But a lot of elderly Coloradans living on their own face much deeper difficulties in dealing with the coronavirus crisis. And for some... The problems are getting worse. I'm joined by Jayla Sanchez-Warren, director of the Area Council on Aging for the Denver Regional Council of Governments. The agency provides home visits and other services for seniors. Those services have changed dramatically in just the last week. Jayla, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Your agency and the groups you work with were providing home visits for a few hundred seniors in the area until recently. Those weren't medical visits, but they were help with meals, bathing, that type of thing. Now you're doing very few of those. Why? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is a lot of older adults don't want people coming into their home. Um, And that's not bad advice. Um, Uh, So a lot of us that work in kind of not the medical field, but the helping field, we don't have personal protective equipment. And so uh, it makes our clients uncomfortable if we come in without gloves and masks and we don't have those. The other thing is we don't want to take a virus from one person to another person to another person, right? So we're staying. And then also for the protection of our staff. So we've triaged. Um, the people that we serve really trying to focus on um, only going out to those folks that really need us to go out. And you don't have that personal protective equipment. And we still are doing that. Gotcha. I'm sorry. Oh, and you don't have that personal protective equipment because there's a shortage, I imagine. Um, That's right. There is a shortage. We'll talk in a minute about how you're getting the necessities to folks, if they need groceries, for instance. But this must cause some anxiety for your clients, elderly folks living alone. What are you hearing from them as you check in by phone? You know, much like Martha, that was a wonderful story. Um, They are cautious, but don't seem as fearful as, as maybe their children are. Um, they, they are, they're asking for food. They're worried about running out of food and personal items. Um, toilet paper is a big deal for them as well as everybody else. Right. And, and that's a big challenge finding toilet paper in the metropolitan area. So, uh, those are the big ones right now. Medications, getting their medications. I think in a couple of weeks, all those people that stocked up will start running out and we're going to hear more of that. 
And then, you know, it's really, really hard for those can, those people that can't drive and don't have family like Martha does to help, um, you know, to bring things to. And so they have to depend on others to do that. And there are a lot of neighbors helping neighbors, um, but there are some that are pretty isolated, and that's who we focus on, us and our community partners. Do you feel like any of your clients are in danger because these services are being scaled back? There isn't a person actually seeing them? Right. Um, You know, we always worry about that. But one of the things that we're doing is instead of visiting them, we're doing telephone assurance. So like I said, we've prioritized those folks who are the most frail, who maybe have multiple health issues, who don't have a family involved, who live alone or have an elderly spouse. And we provide telephone assurance sometimes two, three times a week for those folks, just checking in, seeing how they're doing physically, emotionally, like Martha said, so important to stay connected, to know that somebody cares about you. Um, And then we're also checking on what they need. Do you need food? Do you need toilet paper? Do you need your medicines? Um, and then, and then we go from there, right? If they need help, then we, then we work really hard to fill those gaps that they have in their lives. So even though you're not seeing as many folks face to face, you're still in very close contact by phone. Right. What happens if a client, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. What happens if a client doesn't have coronavirus symptoms, but needs to see a doctor? Folks this age often have other medical issues. Yeah, that's something that we've, we're still trying to figure out um, those that can benefit from telemedicine, those who are hooked up um, to a hospital that might, or a doctor's office that might have telemedicine. That, you know, we've only really been doing this for like a week and, and a few days um, where we haven't been going out to people's houses. So we're still learning as we're going along. It's kind of like um, building an airplane as you're flying, it's a little bit scary. Um, but we're doing the best we can to identify, then we can always make a phone call with that individual to their doctor's office and help figure out if they need to go in, if they need to go, if um, they need something like dispatch health to come in, um, which is that mobile um, service that comes to your house. That's an option as well. So those, those are things that we'll discuss with the individual and their doctor and go from there. Jayla, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So can I just say, call your area agency on aging if you need any questions, if you have any questions. Absolutely. Because that is where um, you can get assistance. Thanks for sharing. Jayla Sanchez-Warren is director of the Area Council on Aging. It's part of the Denver Regional Council of Governments. She joined us from her home in Evergreen. When we come back, Colorado no longer has a death penalty. We'll get perspective on what went into that decision and what happens now. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Count on CPR News to keep you up to date about the coronavirus in Colorado. At CPR.org, you'll find the latest news and live updates on closures, testing, cases, and more. Live streams of press conferences from local, state, and federal officials and stories from the CPR Newsroom and our colleagues at KRCC in Colorado Springs and other sources. 
Find what you need to know today about the coronavirus in Colorado continuously updated at CPR.org. Colorado's death row is now empty and will stay that way. Monday, Governor Jared Polis signed a bill abolishing capital punishment, and at the same time, he commuted the sentences of three men who had been on Colorado's death row. CPR's public affairs team, Benta Berkland and Andrew Kenny, have been covering the repeal effort, and they join me now. Hi, Benta. Hi, Avery. And hi, Andrew. Hello. Benta, first off, this wasn't a surprise, right, that Polis signed the repeal bill? That's right. A similar bill was introduced last legislative session. The first-year Democrats had full control at the Capitol, and it didn't pass. But the governor has said all along he would sign a bill to repeal the death penalty. It came up on the campaign trail when he was running for governor. He's called it outdated and arbitrary and says it's not really feasible because the drugs that are prescribed in law as the method of execution, he says, are not commercially available in Colorado. But this is a big victory for the people who have been working to abolish the death penalty for a long time in the state. That's right. Over the past 12 years, it has been introduced quite a few times, and it's come really close to passing some very narrow votes only to fail in the end, with Democrats solidifying control of the state. And then a governor that was more open to seeing a bill reach his desk It seemed increasingly inevitable. Also, several Republicans in the Senate voted for it, but still, it was a lot of work to get to this point. Let's talk about the men who were on death row. Andy, remind us who they are. Sure. So first, there's a few commonalities between them. All three are Black men, all attended the same high school in Aurora, and they were all prosecuted in the same judicial district, but for different crimes. So first, there is Nathan Dunlap. In 1993, he murdered four employees at a Chuck E. Cheese restaurant where he used to work. He was supposed to die in 2013, but former Governor John Hickenlooper put an indefinite delay on that execution, and Dunlap has been in legal limbo kind of ever since. Then there's Robert Ray, who was sentenced to death for ordering the 2005 murder of a man named Javad Marshall Fields and Marshall Fields' fiance, Vivian Wolfe. Uh, Marshall Fields was going to testify against Ray about an earlier killing. And the fact that he targeted a witness, that Ray targeted this witness, was part of the reason he got the death sentence. His case was still in appeals, and the execution hadn't been scheduled yet. And lastly, there's Sir Mario Owens. He's connected to Robert Ray. He actually carried out the murders of Marshall Fields and Marshall Fields' fiance and the earlier person as well. His case is in appeals as well. And, uh, you know, Governor Polis told us more than a year ago that he'd probably commute their sentences if the legislature sent him an abolition bill. And that's exactly what happened. If the state Republicans and Democrats were to say, uh, and I were to sign a bill that said we no longer have the death penalty in Colorado, whether it's formally in the bill or not, I would certainly take that as a strong indication that those who are currently on death row should have their sentences commuted uh, to life in prison. That's Governor Jared Polis speaking to us more than a year ago. Andy, were people expecting him to take that step on Monday? It wasn't clear. We knew that he was reaching out to families and talking about this stuff, but It wasn't necessarily the case that he was going to do it this fast. Uh, Some state governors have waited a while before commuting people after the death penalty was repealed. Others haven't done it at all and left it to the courts to decide. This also creates some kind of interesting complications. There's actually still one death penalty trial underway uh, in the case of the murder of Deputy Keith Gum. 
And if that jury chooses death for the suspect, then Polis would have another decision to make about whether to uh, spare another person from the death penalty and instead convert, like with these guys, to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Is Polis being criticized for this move? Yeah, unsurprisingly, he's being criticized by District Attorney George Brockler, a former gubernatorial candidate and a big proponent of the death penalty. Brockler is the DA for the district where this happened, where these cases were prosecuted. And he says he only got word a few hours before the executive orders were released. He only got word a few hours before that, that these commutations were going to happen. And he claims Polis should have consulted with him first. Polis says he has the authority to do that on his own. And also, it was a hard turn of events for Democratic State Senator Rhonda Fields. She's the mother of Javad Marshall Fields and went into politics after her son and his fiance were murdered. And she's been a strong advocate for keeping the death penalty in place. I talked to her yesterday and she called it a, quote, sad, sad day for Colorado. And she feels with the swipe of a pen, Governor Polis undid the work of the jurors and the judicial system. She said, quote, justice was hijacked, and she thinks the justice system was undermined. And Fields said the governor made his decision. And so she says she's going to have to live through it. She said just like she had to live with the death of her son. Fields being in the legislature really must have changed the dynamic of this debate over the years, right, Benta? Well, it did because it was so personal, and this is their colleague at the Capitol. And then remember, we also have Democratic Representative Tom Sullivan, whose son was killed in the Aurora Theater shooting, he's another big advocate for keeping the death penalty. So having high-profile Democrats who were opponents made this harder for the party. It really divided Democrats. But it was also very personal for people trying to abolish it. Democratic Senator Julie Gonzalez is one of the main sponsors. It was emotional for her. She feels it's the right thing to do and long overdue that says she doesn't consider ending the death penalty really a victory, even though it is so momentous. What were the main arguments on both sides? Well, the death penalty opponents worked really hard this year to bring in other families of murder victims to talk about why some of them do not support the death penalty morally or because they say it just doesn't really bring closure. Also, a lot of discussion that the death penalty is disproportionately impacting people of color and We've seen people get exonerated, um, ethical, moral, religious arguments. And one Republican who voted to repeal said, look, the government shouldn't be in the business of killing people. And Andy, what have you heard on the other side? You know, we've heard from other victims' families who, who still think they could get closure or at least justice from seeing the perpetrators die. And we've also heard from some district attorneys like Brockler who said that it's that threat of capital punishment that helps them to convince some of the worst offenders to take plea deals and and potentially avoid those costly trials. That's an idea that others push back on. And, uh, you know, the proponents of death penalty have also argued that it's the punishment of last resort, for example, for somebody who's already sentenced to life in prison and then who commits a, a further crime. Andy, I understand that you've been looking into how Colorado abolishing the death penalty fits into the larger movement to get rid of the capital punishment nationally. What have you found? This is part of a huge shift nationally. Colorado is now the 22nd state to abolish the death penalty. And that is coming from a place where it used to be totally commonplace. It was everywhere. 
even in the 1990s, something like 80% of Americans approved of the death penalty. Um, some states have stepped away from it because innocent people turned out to be on death row. Or there were scandals. In Colorado, it, it was different. The death penalty just kind of withered away here. The states only executed one person since the death penalty was reauthorized by the U.S. Supreme Court back in the 70s. Um, you know, there's not any real doubt that that person, that last person, or that the three people on death row now committed their crimes. But the problem is that juries are less and less likely to agree to administer the death penalty. And, you know, at this point, it's used so infrequently that I think it became easier to make that case that legislators should just get rid of it. Well, I want to thank you both for joining us. Thank you, Avery. CPR's public affairs reporters Andrew Kenny and Benta Brooklyn. They host our weekly politics podcast, Purplish. It's a great way to catch up on what happened this week and what policymakers are up to. And for the time being, with political conversation and with the political side of coronavirus, that's our podcast, Purplish. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, liquor stores closed, then allowed to open again in Denver. What this might say about our anxiety over coronavirus. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Every day on CPR News, you hear stories that transport you out of your world and help you understand the lives of others all across the state and beyond. Hi, I'm Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg. Colorado Public Radio brings you impactful journalism that's only possible because you value and support it. You rely on CPR News to keep you informed. Please support this vital service by donating at CPR.org. We got insight Monday into how important alcohol is to Denverites. Mayor Michael Hancock told citizens that liquor stores would be closing for a little over two weeks to slow the spread of coronavirus. We do not see that as an essential service. This is tonight would be the opportunity for you to go grab supply if you need a resupply. Almost instantly, liquor stores in and around Denver were packed. Lines out the door, a bunch of people in close proximity, exactly what the mayor was hoping to avoid. So he amended his order. Liquor stores and marijuana dispensaries could stay open if they implement extreme physical distancing. Panic booze buying is something we want to talk about with Jolene Park. The Denver nutritionist coined the phrase gray area drinking and created a community for people who fall somewhere between rock bottom and every now and again drinking. Welcome, Jolene. Thanks, Avery. Great to be here. Did people's reactions surprise you? They didn't, no, um, because you know there's such a, a big drinking epidemic in this country, and you know, I, I mean, one aspect of this is is people who are severely addicted and potentially could go would need a medical detox if they don't have liquor stores available to them, and we don't want to flood the the ERs um, with that. And you know, there's another group of people where they're every now and again drinkers and would have paid no attention to that announcement yesterday. But in between those two groups is this middle area, this gray area that invoked and provoked some emotional panic. Um, You know, they wouldn't necessarily, they don't need a medical detox, but not having that resource um, of alcohol for the next couple weeks as comfort, as an anti-anxiety tool, as something to reach to can be very panic inducing. And those are folks that fall into what you call a gray area drinking. What does that mean to you? 
Yeah, it's it's a large segment of the population, again, that doesn't need a medical detox, that doesn't need to go away to treatment. They can and do stop drinking, but they're not every now and again drinkers, and they rely on alcohol to soothe anxiety, to soothe um, discomfort. They look at it as a reward at the end of the day. It's a very frequent pattern and habit um, that they use to, to manage uncomfortable emotions. And how to drink responsibly during this time of isolation is something that's been on my mind, um, and I've set some rules for myself around how much and when I drink alcohol and I'm trying to make sure most of my drinking is still social, a glass of wine with my parents over video chat or virtual happy hour with friends. I wonder, is it a good idea to create some rules? Yeah, I think, you know, awareness and and reflection on when we're drinking, why we're drinking, um, you know, around emotions, around certain events that are happening and and being reflective about that level of discomfort and anxiety in our body. And are we using drinking and alcohol then to try to manage that? And being aware of that is, is key. And you don't just focus on limiting alcohol. You actually encourage people to add things for their to their lives. And I imagine that's part of this anxiety connection. What do you mean by that? Right. Yeah. For me, it's it's not about telling everyone to stop drinking. It's, this is not a, a prohibition stance. Um, but being very reflective is if this panic came up for people yesterday around, um, again, that connection with alcohol is what I use to soothe and comfort. And it's my way to de-stress. And if that has really been the only connection to do that, to to then be reflective on what else can do can support you in that and what can we add in. And these are where all the nourishing pieces come, whether connecting with other people, moving our body, looking at creative outlets, relaxation. All of those things can soothe our nervous system, can help calm the anxiety. Alcohol actually makes anxiety and depression um, increase, and it can decrease, um, it can suppress the immune system. So it does the reverse effect of what we're needing in this pandemic with our immune system and nervous system, but other things can really be much more supportive when we add them in. So it's a little bit like pouring gasoline on our anxiety and depression and our immune systems. Exactly. Um, You actually want people to be especially mindful when they're home with kids. And that's not just because kids can sneak alcohol. What are your concerns? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, this happens every day uh, it, when, you know, when we're not in the situation that we're in, um, alcohol-related injuries and um, drinking too much where people then end up in the hospital. Again, we don't need people overloading the hospital because of alcohol-related incidents. And so if we're stockpiling alcohol in the homes, there's kids, adults, um, but not even, you know, where it goes into kind of a crisis like an injury or, or something happens, but just being available to each other, being available to kids while we're home. And if we're intoxicated, it makes it much more, it's harder to do so. And we often think of alcohol as a sleep aid. Um, But that's not physiologically true, right? Exactly. So again, in a time when we need more sleep, we need for our immune system right now, um, when we need to regenerate and and help our stress, um, you know, come down, we need good sleep. But alcohol interferes with that. So it's it's the reverse. Alcohol, you know, we're thinking that it helps us relax and sleep and and unwind, but it's actually these other things that we add in that can be much more useful and beneficial. And can you give me an example of one or two of those? 
Yeah. Um, it, you know, I would, I would recommend just, you know, one routine each day, like moving your body, um, focusing on your breath. It sounds simple. Um, and it sounds kind of, you know, like it's too simple, but it actually makes such a big difference. A creative outlet, doing something where it's, um, we can repeat it, like putting together a puzzle, knitting, using our hands where we're making or creating something can be a great way to discharge stress. So something else to release those stress feelings besides turning to alcohol. Um, in about 30 seconds we have left, I have to wonder, how the heck did we come to see alcohol as such a helpful crutch? Oh, I mean, we, you know, we've been in this again. The, it, alcohol is so socially accepted as a crutch um, for anxiety, for just soothing our discomfort. And in this time when things are very, uh, the anxiety is really high and the discomfort's high, um, it, uh, it's, you know, of course we're reaching to it. But again, a reminder, there's also other things. It's not saying don't drink, but there's many other things you can reach to as well. Jolene, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Jolene Park is a Denver nutritionist and founder of a hub to combat what she calls gray area drinking. We talked about the pitfalls of drinking in isolation during the coronavirus pandemic. As people socially distance themselves to slow the spread of the coronavirus, they're being asked to cancel all non-essential medical visits. Some healthcare facilities have closed, and most that remain open are requiring patients to call ahead before making a visit. To enable social distancing and ensure that Coloradans can still access non-emergency care, health providers are turning to visits by phone or the internet to fill the gap. Lindsay Fent reports on some recent changes to telehealth in Colorado and how to be how it's being used in response to COVID-19. Hi Lindsay. Hi. What exactly is telehealth? So, in healthcare that term can mean a few different things, uh, but the way people are using it now is to refer to any doctor visit that isn't done in person. So, these visits can be done over the phone. Uh, in online video conferences or in online chat. And they're always with a licensed provider, uh, which is usually a doctor or a nurse practitioner. So what role does telehealth have to play during this global health crisis? Uh, So the CDC is recommending that healthcare providers start to rely more on telehealth, both for regular healthcare appointments and in response to COVID-19. So this lets people with non-emergency health issues talk to their doctors without actually having to go into a facility and expose themselves to other patients. Uh, And then people who suspect that they may have COVID-19 can also use it to discuss their symptoms with a doctor who can then screen them um, to see whether or not they should be tested. Uh, In both of these cases, the doctor can recommend that the patient get in-person care if they have dangerous symptoms of something. Um, or they can also prescribe some medicines remotely. Um, I talked to Dr. Amy Ducro, who is Kaiser Permanente's lead infectious diseases expert for Colorado. Uh, Here she is explaining the benefit of telehealth. During the coronavirus pandemic or this situation that we're seeing now, we are really encouraging a virtual first strategy so that we can meet everyone's care needs by addressing them through these channels rather than having them come into the medical office buildings, which may pose a risk to them um, or to others uh, if they are sick. So it's so useful in this situation. What is being done in Colorado to expand telehealth? 
So last week, Senator Michael Bennett led a group of other senators uh, in writing a letter to the FCC that was urging them to increase subsidies to rural health providers. Uh, So this would allow rural clinics and hospitals to expand their telehealth networks. Uh, And then here in Colorado, Governor Polis also ordered all state-regulated insurance providers to waive fees for telehealth visits that are related to COVID-19. So this means that anyone that accesses telehealth uh, through their insurance company, they won't have to pay for the visit if it's related to COVID-19. Are healthcare providers able to fulfill the increase in demand for these services? So telehealth has been around for a pretty long time. So most providers and insurance companies already have these services set up. In Colorado, insurers are required to cover telehealth like they would a regular doctor visit. So healthcare providers are now just relying more heavily on these networks and shifting resources that would have been used for in-person care into telehealth. So Kaiser Permanente, for example, closed most of its clinics in Colorado last week in response to COVID-19. They're consolidating all of their in-person visits to 10 of their clinics, and then everything else is going to telehealth. If someone in Colorado wanted to make a telehealth visit, how do they do that? Uh, So people with insurance regulated by the state can access telehealth through their insurer's website or by calling them. Uh, Some insurers provide telehealth services directly, and then others will refer their patients to some other provider like a hospital or a clinic. Uh, If the visit is related to COVID-19, it legally has to be free. Uh, Other ones might carry a cost. There are also some... We're actually going to have to wrap up right there. Thank you so much for joining us, Lindsay. Okay, thanks. Reporter Lindsay Fent here to talk about the role of telephone and virtual doctor's visits during the coronavirus outbreak. Health officials across the state are struggling to get enough COVID-19 testing kits, but one Colorado county is planning to test every single person, even if they're not sick. CPR's Allison Sherry reports San Miguel County won't even have to foot the bill. It's yet another lucky day to be in Telluride. Bluebird skies in Telluride, and check it out, some skiers were actually sharing the mountain. With but during a global market. pandemic, it's not access to skiing I'm talking about. It's access to a coronavirus test. And in San Miguel County, everyone gets one. It, what an opportunity, right? That's Grace Franklin, the county's public health director. Franklin feels lucky because San Miguel County isn't paying for the tests. Having this option is important for a county with limited health care options. Two executives from an international biomedical company have a home in Telluride, and they are offering the tests for free to anyone who wants one. We're all as a global community learning about this virus, and so there's a lot unknown. And so this will, again, just give that better picture and snapshot. Lou Reese and his partner May May Hugh are co-CEOs of United Biomedical. Reese says testing even healthy people on a large scale could provide helpful public health information. So this is about empowering people with real, transparent, and accurate information. This is about potentially, what if, what if we find out that the spread is more than we ever thought? And, every, and so everybody's already infected. And so that would mean that it was, the disease wasn't as deadly as we think. What, wouldn't it be great to have that data? The southwestern Colorado County has about 8,200 people. The tests will be voluntary. They differ from the CDC tests because they're blood antibody tests and not swabs, which means they can test whether you've ever had coronavirus, 
and have an immunity to it. This comes at a time when access to COVID-19 test kits has frustrated public health officials in Colorado and across the country. And testing inequity is raising eyebrows, whether it's for professional athletes or the residents in San Miguel County. Scott Bookman works at the state's Department of Public Health and the Environment. There is obviously a great need and great demand for testing that uh, is struggling to be met. Bookman was circumspect about San Miguel's experiment. It's not CDPHE's role to approve of a test such as that. They have gotten clearance by the FDA to do this work, and we are evaluating our own interpretation of the efficacy of that. We have made no determination at this point on what the right strategy is. Large-scale testing, especially among healthy people, hasn't happened very much since the outbreak of COVID-19. There was a similar study in a small Italian town, a blood sample from everyone, even people without symptoms. Officials in that town were able to contain the virus within a couple of weeks because they isolated the infections once they knew where they were. May May Hugh hopes her company's work can provide valuable health data for San Miguel County and the state. We're a small community, but we have lots of international travelers and place people coming from all over the world. Right now, we don't know much about the disease. We don't know actually what the disease prevalence is. Testing inequity is a reality across the country. But researchers hope this experiment in one Colorado county can provide some important information about how to contain a pandemic. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. For the latest on Colorado's response to the coronavirus pandemic, keep listening throughout the day or go to CPR.org and sign up for our newsletter, The Lookout. While the social distancing continues, we asked folks on Twitter what the best board game is to play right now. We offered up four popular choices, some classic, some newer, Clue, Scrabble, Catan, and Codenames. It was a tight race, but in the end... Catan wins with 38% of the votes. Of course, this is unscientific and all in good fun. A couple of fun facts. The 25-year-old board game dropped its longer title, The Settlers of Catan, in 2015, and the largest game of Catan ever to be played involved a 1,000 players. But needless to say, don't try to break that record right now. Finally today, we want to hear how your relationship is going. Yes, I'm serious. Recent news reports suggest rising divorce rates in one Chinese city after the coronavirus outbreak. Couples who normally have hours, if not days apart due to work, suddenly find themselves together all the time. Is it too much? And how do you strike a balance? So how's isolation going for you and your partner? Send us a voice memo at coloradomatters at cpr.org, and we might use it on air for an upcoming discussion about relationships in isolation. So again, that's coloradomatters at cpr.org. That's it for Colorado Matters today. Thanks for joining us. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News. CPR News.